welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right, welcome back to season three of Coffee and Conservation. I'm Beth Baker, and I am so excited for this series of episodes. Uh, This next part features Dr. Bill Robertson, who has served as the Cotton Extension Agronomist with the University of Arkansas System and their Division of Agriculture Cooperative Extension Service for 17 years. He is very well known in the state and obviously here in Mississippi as well. Um, And he's just got a wealth of experience to share with us. And so we we dug into so many important topics um, that I broke our conversation into three episodes. So make sure you catch all of them. But we're going to kick it off here, getting into a little bit of his background, his experience working in cotton systems in Arkansas. Enjoy. The content in each of these episodes is so great. At the same time, we were recording via Zoom, and there are a few places where the internet wasn't so strong. So just bear with us in those spots. It's definitely still worth listening to. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you came into your current position. All right. Uh, I grew up on a cotton farm outside of Lubbock, Texas in Crosby County. It was a family farm. It, it, the The farm, we, we had a farm that was on my dad's side of the family and a farm that was on my mom's side of the family. And the, the house we lived in was, was actually homesteaded on my mom's side of the family. And the old dugout was still there. And, and the house that my granddad was born in, they tore it down and used that lumber to build a house my mom grew up in. And so that was the house that I lived in. And, and this is kind of maybe getting off, off track a little bit, but the, when I went to college, we sold the farm. So we, we don't have that family farm anymore. But that was the first time my mom had ever moved. She was born in that house. She was born at home. And uh, when her and my dad got married, my grandparents moved out and moved to town and she stayed in that house. And so, uh, that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of history there. I went to school at West Texas state, I majored in plant science, uh, was out for a bit, uh, worked for a plant breeder and decided to go back to school and went to, did all my graduate work at Texas A&M. And, uh, when I started my PhD, I, I worked full-time for the experiment station. So I can only take one class a semester. So it took me a long time to finish my PhD but I got a lot of really good experience. We had a field research program with uh, mostly cotton, but we had corn and soybeans and, and wheat. And so we did a lot of different things working with uh, Tom Cawthorn, a plant physiologist. And so that, that set me up pretty well for to go straight into an extension cotton agronomist job with, uh, with the University of Arkansas. Now to speak, now fast forward a little bit. Um, when I took the job in Memphis, we was looking for a place to stay in around Memphis. And when you buy land around Memphis, you're buying land that they're selling to build houses on. And so I told my wife, I said, let's, let's look for a place that I want to retire to growing up around Lubbock. You know, we didn't have very many trees, didn't have much running water. So I told her, I want to find a place that has hills, trees, and creeks that have water in it all the time. And we found that place. So 
So we're back on a farm. My wife is the full-time farmer of the house and I'm the spouse of the job in town so we can have insurance. So, so we're uh, getting our, uh, is my wife grew up on a family farm and I grew up on a family farm and those farms aren't in the family anymore. So we're kind of starting all over, but you can't, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, you know, once a farmer, always a farmer, just about. Yeah. There are so many important, important things you mentioned. I can't, I, first of all, you're, your um, experience on the experiment station. Um, I, I bet that was just so eye-opening to how agricultural research is conducted and the different ways you can do it and the, the challenges of doing it in the elements. Um, you know, how much does that play yeah. into your view now? Well, I was very fortunate because I grew up on a farm and, and my dad had a, a kidney disease. And so basically my junior and senior year, I basically did all the farming because he wasn't really healthy enough to be able to do that. You know, he had good days and bad days. But so when I went to college, you know, I had a pretty good background in farming on how things are done. I just didn't know why and how things worked. And I know even when I was, you know, in graduate school, when I took organic chemistry, some of those classes like that were kind of fun because it was like, an aha moment they said oh that's how that works is everything makes sense but even in my undergrad i worked at the experiment station at, at bushland it was a, a an ars texas a&m experiment station and i worked for a soil scientist there so i really got introduced into doing research as an undergrad and and i really like that i'm very ocd on things so <laughs> so doing research really fits somebody that's ocd <laughs> It's a critical trait that we kind of have to have. <laughs> yeah, but but I worked for him for several years and then uh, went to work for a, a plant breeder and still doing research things. And I saw right away, you know, if I, if I was ever really going to to move on up the ladder and to do other things, I needed to go back to school. And so I was out five years between my undergrad and, and when I started my master's. And so that's kind of what got me back to where I am. But things... You know, they, they always, you know, always felt like I was very lucky because things just kind of fell into place at the right time. They say you make your own luck, but I really feel like I was very fortunate to where my PhD program uh, was, because I really don't see myself as PhD material sometimes, but uh, he needed, he needed somebody that knew how to farm and understood research and all that. So everything just really fell, fell, fell into place and worked good for me. I think it worked good for him too. Yeah, the, and, and you just touched on it, but the other side of that experience that is so helpful, especially when you're doing extension work, and I, I realize most of your work now is with farmers, is that you're a farmer yourself. You have a farming background and your wife is a farmer as well. How yeah. much do you think that really helps in your communication with stakeholders? Well, it, it helps on the communication thing because um, you know, it, I think it, it helps me to better relate, right. but then even in my research, you know, we'll go through and look to see what works and, and there's, and, and I use this example a lot, you know, very rarely do things look like the picture in the book. And if you're a researcher and you're not in the field very much, you're not in the real world very much. Well, the only thing you know is a picture in the book and you kind of get in the field and you're kind of lost and, and things, and you don't want people to know what you don't know. And, and so you kind of get into some of those situations. And so some people kind of get stuck in that vicious cycle. Um, you know, I've go out to fields and, and look at things and, and, you know, farmers have an issue with a crop and, 
and uh, I'll, you know, uh, I'll look at it and we figure out kind of what's wrong. And some of the farmers say, man, how did you, how did you learn all this stuff? And uh, I think, you know, learning things, uh, having successes, you know, there's some failures that go in front of that to, before you have success. <laughs> a lot of times you have to have failures. Always, always. And, and uh, so a lot of times I just tell them, man, I've really, you know, I know a lot because I messed up a whole lot in my life. I really messed up and done some, done some things that were kind of goofy and had to work my way out of it. You know, I think, and this may be getting a little bit off subject, but some of our younger generation, I think, grew up a lot different than the way I grew up. Because when I grew up, I was farming. If I broke something, well, then I had to figure out how to fix it and hopefully get it fixed and get it working again before dad, before dad found out I broke it. <laughs> and now then a lot of, a lot, you know, like our kids and our grandkids, especially, well, something breaks, well, they're done. Mm-hmm. And so we had to figure out how to fix things and how to make things work. And I think that that kind of puts you in a position to where you can identify what's wrong and, and what, what you can do to fix it. But the bottom line, you know, as an extension specialist is helping somebody figure out how not to fall in that same hole again. <laughs> right. Right. So I, I can only imagine that the, the, the research priorities from when you started with the experiment station to what you're focused on now have really shifted. And of course, you know, our oh, landscape, exactly. yeah, our, our production systems have changed. Our landscapes are, are generally the same. Um, but tell me about how the research, you know, you started doing has really shifted into the research you do now. Yeah, because I look at things and and I see things completely different now than I was before. I think as an agronomist, I think a lot of us are trained, you know, we take soil samples and, and we're aware of some of the things that go below the soil surface. But generally as agronomists, I focus primarily on things that took place on a cotton plant above the soil surface. And then I like to think of the, you know, I spent uh, about seven and a half years at the National Cotton Council. And uh, sometimes I look at that as maybe a, a sabbatical. That's <laughs> a long sabbatical, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, anyway, that kind of gave me a little bit different focus on things is working with the supply chain because the National Cotton Council is the lobbying industry for the entire cotton, um, U.S. cotton industry. So it's producers, but the textile mills, the merchants, the generous, everybody. And, um, and so the, the industry was beginning to, to be more focused on sustainability, uh, focusing on the environment um, and so forth. And it gave me a little better understanding of what our supply chain wants in terms of, from our cotton crop. And so then I started focusing on some of the things that were going blown below the soil surface, our rooting and, and the impact that our soil microbes have on plant growth and, and so forth. And then there, there were a lot of questions that, you know, when I moved to Arkansas, things were so different than the high plains of Texas. Our soil is so different. And uh, there were a lot of things that just didn't, didn't really make sense to me. But then when I started focusing more on or putting more emphasis on what was happening below the soil surface, some of those things started making a little more sense. Why, why we saw, you know, potash deficiencies the way we do in our soils in the Mid-South. You know, a lot of those things started making sense. So, so now then, I feel like I have a little bit better understanding of, of why we see what we see in the field. And, and that's helped me to, to, 
to better address some of some of our problems, some of the situations. Now, there's people up on campus. <laughs> they look at me and say, "Bill, you're crazy," and but but I really feel like having that having that understanding and 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 just kind of thinking outside the box a little bit really to me helps helps bring everything together to solve some of the problems and answer some of the questions that, that I know that I've always had. So my things, my things have changed a lot and really looking at, you know, I've talked about sustainability, some of those other things, those are things that our supply chain wants. What does a farmer want? He's worried about being in business next year. You know, things, things are, it's, you know, I know farmers that have, have farmed almost 50 years and they say, Bill, it's not, you know, I don't have 50 years of experiences. I have 50 experiences in farming because every year is different. But the main thing is, is to stay in business. So our supply chain wants more, you know, wants to be able to source a sustainably produced uh, fiber. Producers want to be profitable. And so I try to line those things up in my program, the things that make they get the get us they help us be more sustainable that our supply chain wants line those same things up that help the farmers be more profitable and then i feel like that's kind of a win-win for everyone and that's that's kind of the after coming back from the national cotton council back into the same job with extension that's kind of how my my focus has changed some in what i do yeah i like uh you know i like the way both you're you're lining those things up on the farm landscape but also kind of focused on addressing those root causes and really identifying where the problems lie so when you're out with producers now and you know you, you mentioned you look at the landscape a lot differently what are some of the soil or, or water or plant health concerns that you see um that really relate back to some of those you know conservation or soil health um drivers that you might yeah. that you might look to to shift yeah <clears throat> you know i came to arkansas in 95 and like i said the the soils in arkansas and here in the mid-south are so different than the soils where i grew up in texas you know a lot of times after rain in texas where i grew up on the southern high plains uh, you go out in the field and, and you're going to sink down in the mud halfway between your ankle and your knee. <laughs> and it's easy to lose a rubber boot. Well, the very first week I was here in Arkansas, um, I started to work the 1st of July, 1995. And um, we got a rain. You know, a lot of times we get it that July 4th rain here in Arkansas. And so we went out and I put my rubber boots on and all that. And, every, and I noticed while I was putting my rubber boots on, nobody else had rubber boots on. There was still water standing in the middles. And we walked out there, I put my rubber boots on and, and I just walked on either side of the standing water in the middles and I'm back. And I wasn't even hardly making a track in, in the field. And so, you know, our, uh, they just, you know, just from day one, that just, just showed me how different things were. And I remember when we first started getting yield monitors on pickers, we think, okay, we're going to be able to use this and be able to get our fertility fine-tuned. And we're just really going to, going to rock, rock this world by increasing lent yield. And it, and it showed what everybody says, our most limiting factor in production, cotton production, and it's not just cotton, is drainage. And you know, our poor areas on the yield maps were went line in line with the areas where we had poor drainage. And so when we look at that, you know, our water infiltration, we have, you know, 
our, we have very poor water infiltration, uh, internal drainage. And in our, a lot of our silt loam soils, they tend to be fragile pan in nature and we have pH issues and all that. But all of those things point toward our lack of soil health. Um, we, our organic matter is really low. You know, when I first came here and, and looking at organic matter, sometimes 0 0.5, 0 0.6 is all organic matter we had. And so when we make improvements in soil health, we, we, we help a lot of those things. But, you know, drainage here in Arkansas, and, and I think in Mississippi and a lot of other places, there's things too, especially on some of these soils. But I visit with people, you know, with farmers and, and a lot of farmers, you know, in the, in, you know, that are, doing the the high yields and soybeans and you know we'll say okay what what is what are what are some of your key things to producing the the really great bean yields you do and they say plant early and have drainage and and you know wheat you know we had eight dollar wheat and i'd have to plant some wheat but but wheat is pretty tough here because you know when i first came here i heard people say you cannot cut enough drain furrows in wheat you just got you know drain it you just cannot have too much drainage out there you know, there's old saying, you know, May dust is gold dust in wheat. And most of the time we don't have a lot of dust, dusty days in, in May. So it, wheat's pretty tough. But even with $8 wheat, I'd have to try that. But the drainage is is one of our one of our biggest things. And, and so improving soil health just really goes a long ways on doing that. Yeah, it's um, it's validating to hear you say that because in, in my experience, too, in just six years working with Extension, if I ask about, you know, what are what are some of the, your concerns in the field? It's always compaction or drainage. And yet with the amount of rainfall we get to, that can mm -hmm. be a really, a really tricky issue to address. Oh, exactly. You know, when, you know, even when you go to the textbooks, you look at it, um, it infiltration rates on a sit home soil, you know, most, most of the tables I've ever looked at half an inch an hour. Well, you know, when we get an inch and a half, two inches, a lot of times in 30 minutes, well, it's no wonder that most of it runs off. And it's really interesting, some of the farmers I work with, especially some of the ones that have really been serious about no-till for a long time, you can you can go across the, the turn row to some of their neighbor's uh, fields that, you know, the same type of soil, everything, and look at the infiltration rates. But it's really dry then sometimes it's tough to get half an inch an hour. But if you've got some moisture uh, not too long after after a good rain or something like that, then sometimes we can measure an, an inch an hour infiltration rate on a sit loam soil. But you go in their fields where they've been doing cover crops for several, several years. It's not unusual to see six to eight inches an hour on the infiltration rates. And so then, so that's when, you know, when you look, you get a, you get a big two inch rain and it comes pretty quick. Then a lot of times the people that, have been doing things to improve soil health. Their corn still looks good. This, you know, these were some cornfields we were looking at. The corn looks good and, and healthy, and and in the neighbor's field, it's it's already starting to look like a pineapple because all that rain run off, and and so uh, they didn't, weren't able to harvest much of that rainfall. And so that that really helps impact our bottom line when we can when we can harvest as much of that free water as we can and not have to pump. So I want to circle back to, you mentioned, you know, one of the practices that might help address and improve drainage is your farmers that are doing no-till, some that have been doing cover crops for a while, um, and working in the Mid-South too, uh, having some cover crop and, and reduced tillage projects. 
we still routinely run into, um, you know, folks who've tried it and it, it, both of those tools and that they haven't worked very well or they don't think they've worked very well. So your folks that are having success with no tillage and cover crops, talk about how they're managing them and how important management and having a strategy is to finding some, to, to actually being able to visualize and experience some of these benefits. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> getting, a, getting the cover crop established for those people that are having success with cover crop to them is just as important as getting their cash crop uh, planted and established. And, and those are some things that, that frankly, myself on, on, on our farm, well, as I said, my wife is the full-time farmer. We're, we're livestock and forager up in the hills in Jackson County. So we're on the edge of the Ozarks. Uh, my wife grew up outside of Jonesboro. And there was a lot of mosquitoes there. And so we live up in the hills. We don't have mosquitoes up in the hills, but we, but we do have some ticks. But um, some things I struggle with trying to get um, um, – winter annuals established in, in our warm season pastures is, is getting it, getting it planted, getting it up. You know, I, I can't afford it. I can't afford a drill. And so I, I oversee pastures and, and the last couple of years, mother nature has not been very friendly to overseeding. And we do the same thing as some of our cotton fields and some of our bean fields. A lot of times we'll, we'll, go out with an airplane or a fertilizer buggy and, and broadcast seed. And if mother, you know, the last couple of falls when we've had good heat units for those cover crops to grow, then we didn't have moisture for them to come up. And then when we finally got moisture, then we didn't have the heat units for them to grow. And so I'm seeing some of the, I'm struggling with some of the same things in, in livestock and forage that we struggle with in, in the row crops is, is getting them established. And so the farmers that I know, that are very serious about this and that are doing a, a great job, they have drills and, and they drill their cover crop. In fact, I know some of them that have um, a pretty serious rotation. You know, when they're shelling corn, they've got guys on the on the drill, drilling their cover crops right behind the combine. And so getting, getting it in and established uh, is, is very, is very important. And with cotton, you know, I think year in and year out, best luck establishing cover crops, flying it out with an airplane in front of our first defoliation. Uh, a lot of times that's seven to nine dollars. And I don't know with with fuel going up, it, you know, a lot of times you get uh, a fuel surcharge on your bill from the pilot. So I don't know how much it's going to cost uh, as we move into the future. But. A lot of times, you know, seven to nine dollars an acre is what it costs to get it flown out. And, you know, we like to I'd like to try to be in the neighborhood of, of no more than, you know, I like to kind of be in the range of 20, 25 dollars an acre on my cover crop seed. And then but a lot of people don't want to spend another another extra amount to get somebody to fly it on. And so by the time we pick our cotton and shred our stalks and then get out there with a with a with a buggy or spreader truck or whatever and, and put our seed out. Well, we're, we're, we're into October, uh, we're out of heat units and we, we just have a hard time getting it up. And so I think <laughs> to, to make a short answer very long, like what I've done is, is getting that cover established, I think is the key. And, and, and that's something that, 
I still struggle. I've, I've struggled with myself. Yeah, and our, our weather certainly has been challenging the last couple of years. And I know even this year, it was it was more wet than we planned on in the fall. Harvest was pushed back for a lot of folks. Um, where they ended up flying cover crops on later anyway. And so I think that though speaks to your point about planning and maybe considering just flying them on earlier to get some of those benefits and get it established yeah. early if they're going to do that anyway on the back end. Yeah. You know, there's some things you have to think about too. I really like to have black seeded oats in, in my cover crop mix on, on, on cotton and, and it's the, the same mix, you know, heavy on grasses, a uh, little lighter on, on broadleaves works good on beans too. But when you look at black oat seeds that, you know, they have the, the little uh, tufts on, on the seed that, you know, if the seed's not conditioned and it's not very aerodynamic at all, it will not fly, it will not distribute anywhere close to, to a cereal rye or, or, or triticale or wheat or vetch or, or some of the others. So you kind of have to pick and choose what seeds that you put out and on how you're going to plant. And, um, I work with with a guy, Tim Smith, is who I've, I've been doing a lot of work with, uh, and get my he's at he's at Cotton Plant, Arkansas, and uh, Southern Soil Solutions is the name of his company. But anyway, um, I like to work with him. He conditions some seed, but still, you know, we try to pick the seed if we're going to put them out with an airplane or put them out with a buggy. We need to think about the aerodynamics of the seed and, and what seeds you can mix together. And so, but I really like to have black seeded oats because even at planting time, they hold their leaf good. They have a different uh, root distribution than, than the, than the, the rye uh, and uh, the triticale, but, but still, you know, you need to have that diversity in there, but I like, I like the, you know, there, there's a lot of forwards that hold the leaf good, give good, good cover, but I just can't get the seed out and, and putting that big seed on top ground. You, if, if you don't, your moisture's just not right. It's it's not going to come up. And so I have pretty good luck with um, with cereal rye. I've done some triticale this year. Um, wheat, you know, there are a lot of things out there that are better than wheat. But some people use wheat. Wheat's better than nothing. But uh, but I I really don't 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 use wheat much in my cover crop blends. Um, uh, I like to use Nebraska if I plant early. Then that tillage radish, I like to use those, but but you need to get those planted early so we can make sure we get good winter kill. And uh, and I like hairy vetch. Some people hairy vetch kind of scares people because you know when <laughs> when we start getting into April, the hairy vetch kicks it in high gear and <laughs> and it can grow a lot of plant really quick. And and sometimes it that's that's a little scary, but I really like that diversity. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.